you to, to re repeat this with me. We're going we're gonna to add our faith to this. We're going to release our faith. Say this after me. I release my faith in your power to keep me today. That power keeps me delivered from every evil work today. I am kept from all injury, harm, and destruction. The angels of God bear me up today to keep me safe. Injury, nor any form of stealing, killing, or destroying will come near me today. My mind, my body, my money, my home, my stuff, my family, my pastors, and my church. I am delivered from every evil work and your power is working in me to preserve my life to bring you glory upon this earth. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I feel better just saying that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. See, the power of God's working in you. The power of God's working in you. The power of God's working in you. Every time you speak the word of God, the power's at work in you. That's the power of the word. Your words have power and your words will fulfill your destiny. Whether you understand that or not, or whether you even believe it or not, it's just a spiritual law you can't change. Your words or the lack of your words will take you to your, your, your destiny. See, if you don't say anything, you'll never get anywhere. You'll always feel like you're just stuck. You're, you're just doing the same thing over. That's because you don't, you're not speaking anything. Likewise, you can speak the wrong things and you can feel like you're getting deeper in debt or deeper, it's getting worse. Yeah, because you're saying the wrong things. But you start speaking the word of God and things start happening. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to get, everything's going to go away overnight. Why? Because you, you have an adversary, the devil, and he's fighting against you. Now, see, when you get to heaven, how you're going to get around in heaven? Your words. Same way. It, it's not going to change when we get to heaven and operate differently. No, the, 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 the situation you're going to have in heaven, you have no adversary there. So in heaven, when you say something, it comes to pass immediately. Immediately. Now, why do you think God said in, in the word that we would experience days of heaven on earth if we couldn't do it? Because in heaven, there's no sickness. There's no lack. Nobody's concerned about the rising gas prices, rising inflation, the value of the dollar. On it. They're not. Because they know they have everything. All they have to do is speak it. And it's there. All right? But see, the word says that we would experience days of heaven on earth. It's based on a lot what you say and what you believe. See, when we start out saying those things, making that confession, initially, you may, you may not, you know, you, you'll say things, well, I don't know if I, whether I believe it or not. Well, see, but the longer you keep saying something, something's going to go off in your spirit, and you're going to say, you know, I believe everything in that. I'm not, you know, right now, 
I'm not actively looking for another job, but you know what? If a job come along and said, hey, pastor, we're going to give you this and this and this, you know, and I prayed about it, and the Lord said, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm believing God for better jobs. Our bonuses. Thank you. Just because we say something that doesn't apply to you, still say it and release your faith. Because God will bring it around to you. Because that's what you're believing Him for. You know, a couple weeks ago, I started teaching on Revelation, the book of Revelation. We're going to continue that today. So if you would, open your Bible to the book of Revelation. And the, Revel the, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that says there's a special blessing that's released when you read it. All right? And, you know, I've taught on, in, in this first part of Revelation, the first three or four, five chapters here, uh, I don't know, maybe half dozen or more times in, in uh, 15 going on plus years in ministry. But I've never taught it this way that I'm teaching right now. God's taken me to another place. Because normally I would, I would get through these, these, these chapters here, these first three, uh, four chapters, three chapters basically, in a Sunday, maybe two. Where we're on the second Sunday and I got news for you, there's going to be a third one. I mean, because I'm not going to get, I can't get through it. It's just because of what the Lord's been showing me about this. And I want to say something about here is, is when we're reading this, this, this scripture in Revelation here, this, the, the revelation that the Apostle John got from Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is filled with prophecies, but it's, but it's not about prophecy. It's about, the, it's about Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus. If you remember that, and remember as you study it and you read it, don't get intimidated by it. A lot of churches, they'll never teach out of this book. Why? Because a lot of pastors are intimidated by it. Why? Because they don't study it. They don't want to learn about it. You know, they, based on what they know, which is not very much because there's very little teaching out there. And I've, I've, I've listened to ministers that have taught on Revelation, one of them being Hilton Sutton, who's in, who's in heaven, and I kind of pattern my teaching from Hilton Sutton's teaching. And you can find him online, and it's like uh, 16 hours long of teaching on Revelation. And I don't teach as near as much as what he teaches. Why? Because he, he was doing this for years and years. And I, I think he was in his 80, late 80s when he finally went to heaven. But, you know, I, I listen to people like that. Uh, I don't listen to everybody that's teaching on Revelation. You know, I have to know them first. You know, some pastor or some minister that gets on YouTube or something and pulls up, I'm not going to listen to them because I don't know them. I, I want to make sure that I know the fruit that's in their ministry first before I, I start studying. So if we look here in Revelation here, and we left off in chapter 2, all right, we left off in chapter 2, and, and I want to say this, this was a, there's a, it says it's to the angel of the, of the church, all right? And that word angel is probably a poor translation because it's to the minister of the church, which means you, you could translate, a better translation would be the pastor of the church. Because God, when God brings a revelation to the church, he brings it to the pastor first. God works through order of chain of command. 
He doesn't speak to somebody that's uh, you know a newcomer to the church and say, "Go in and tell the church this is what they're what they need to be doing." No, he doesn't operate that way. All right, he speaks to the pastor when when uh, correction comes. The pastor should be the first one to know. All right, when praises come, the pastor should be the first one to know because God's going to. That's how He operates. Remember, Jesus said, "Seek ye first." the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all the other things will be. And in other words, find out how heaven operates here on earth. Now, there's one thing, I, I mean, I kind of knew this, but the Lord was speaking to me this early this morning as I was studying. He said, notice these letters. There's seven churches. And, there's, and these letters were addressed to the angel of the church, the pastor of each church, in these areas. He said, you'll notice in Revelation, I didn't write a letter to the world. I said, well, yeah, because it doesn't apply, because they're, they're going to hell. He said, and if you'll notice, I didn't write a letter to the unchurched. I said, oh, that's true, you didn't. What about them? He said, they're in rebellion. I, I'm, I'm writing letters to churches that are trying to fulfill the Word of God. And that's when we study these letters, you'll find that's, that's what... He, because he brings correction to all the churches except for one. Alright? But there was correction brought. And that's what we're kind of looking at today here. Alright, so if we look here in verse 8. Now, if you didn't get to catch the first part, you can go to our Facebook page and uh, catch the uh, two weeks ago, Revelation. I encourage you to go back and watch, watch that part because that will catch you up on the, f the first part of this book. All right. In, Re in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now he says, this is Jesus speaking, and he's speaking to the angel of the church, or like I said, the pastor of the church. Alright? It's the same word. It, it uses the same word for pastors as it does angels. So in a lot of sense, you can look at a true pastor. God causes them an, an angel. Alright? Your pastor is your angel. He's an angel to the church. Now, I'm not saying that people become angels because angels are a different, they're a different creation. Your loved ones don't die, go to heaven and become, come back being a little angel, all right? That's not biblical. But what I am saying here in Revelation, it uses the same word to describe the pastor as the angel or a messenger. A messenger, that's what the pastor's job is, is to minister, is if you remember, when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, in, in Revelation 1, Jesus said he has made us kings and priests. And what does a king do? A king rules the land. What does a priest do? A priest ministers to the Lord, ministers to the Father, and then gets a message from the Father for him or for the church. Okay, so Jesus is saying here, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, I write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. He's speaking about himself. I was dead, but now I'm alive. 
All right? He's reminding the church that he was dead, but he's alive now. He's not dead. So don't look at him like he's dead. He's not, and he's not saying they were. He's just saying he's reminding them, which was dead in his life. He says, I know your works and tribulation and poverty, poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, let's break this down a little because he says, I know your works. When Jesus says he knows your works to the church of Smyrna, he's saying that by personal experience. That's what this word know means. He's not just saying, I was just seated on the throne of heaven and I heard about your works. No, this means something different because it means he stepped down from his throne and walked, as we talked about two weeks ago, among the candlesticks. The church is the candlestick, the light of the world. All right, and he walked through the churches just as he's walking here today. He's, yeah, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, he's right here in this little bitty church. He's walking the eye, he's listening, he's watching, he's looking, he's perceiving. And that's what he was saying to the church at Smyrna. I know your works. I've seen them. I was there when you did them. I experienced it with you. I wasn't just sitting on my throne and hearing hearsay from the angels and from prayers. I experienced this stuff with you. All right, so you see, he takes it to a whole other level here. He says, I know your works, and he says, and the tribulation and the poverty. All right, this word tribulation is a different word. Um, he says this word here, tribulation, and he only addresses it to this church here. Tribulation. This word tribulation is a word of pressure, intense pressure, because what the, what the Romans loved to do and what was happening here in Smyrna, this church was under a lot, a lot of pressure, exceedingly great pressure. But what they would do... Excuse me, I'm going to have to take my jacket off. I'm just getting a little warm in here. What they would do is they would take people and their form of interrogation is they would take you and tie you down on a, on a big slab and they would lift up a huge boulder above you and they would interrogate, inter interrogate you. And then what they would do is, if you didn't answer their questions, they would start to lower the boulder. Closer and closer and closer it would get. Until it was actually touching you. Now you can, you can imagine the emotional experience that, that was being experienced by people that was going through this process. Because they're seeing this boulder come down upon them. And if they refuse to answer the questions, and if they refuse to do what the Romans said, what the leaders of, of this city of Smyrna said, they lowered the boulder continually more and more until ultimately it crushed them. That's what this word tribulation means. So when he, when he says this here, he says, uh, I know your works and the tribulation. And it says, and the poverty, but you are rich. 
Now, he says this about their poverty because the Christians in Smyrna were undergoing a very, very extreme poverty situation. They were so poor because, first of all, the city of Smyrna hated believers. And the only way you could get a job in Smyrna is you had to become a, a member of, of a guild, a workers' guild, kind of like a union. Um, and if you weren't a member of that guild, you couldn't get work. But there was a problem. If you were a member of the guild, you had to do the things that the guild did, which they worshipped other gods. And no Christian would do that. They did uh, just un unbelievable things. I'm talking downright sinful things. Or, 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 or sexual orgies and all kinds of demented things they would do, sacrificing. You had to do it in order to be part of that guild. So you can see now the Christians that can't get work because of the situation. And so Jesus is saying, I know of your poverty. I've seen you in poverty. So poor, you don't even have food to feed yourself. And as I'm seeing this, I'm thinking, and we've got people that say, well, I won't go to church because somebody made me mad. Say that to the church in Smyrna. Say that somebody took your parking spot to the church at Smyrna when you get to heaven, if you get there. And let them they'll tell you what they went through. They were starving. But Jesus says to them, he says, the tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Why did he say they were rich? They were rich in their fellowship with one another. They came together. They stood together. They believed the word of God together. They did not separate themselves. They were united in faith. They were trusting God. And they were under great extreme pressure the whole time. Jesus witnessed it. And so as he goes on, he says, I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews, which the Jews did not like Christians. Why? Because they were in competition with Christians. Because they knew that we were worshiping the same God that they, but we believed the Son had already come here. They didn't. They believed the Messiah was coming. So there was this competition with Jews. But Jesus would say, they say they're Jews. He says, they're not Jews. Now, I'm not going to get into that too much because that's a whole different animal. But it, it's, it's true. It's going on. Not everybody that says they're Jewish is Jewish. He says, and are not. But they are of the synagogue of Satan. They are of the church of Satan. Now, here's what he says in verse 10. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Notice what he says here. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. So Jesus is saying, I know you're going to suffer some things, but don't get in fear over it. This is his word to the church. Don't get in fear over it. Yes, you're going to suffer some things. Because see, this church is alive today. 
somewhere in the world. People are suffering things because of the situations they're in. And they're going to go through some stuff. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They're going to go through it. And Jesus' word to them, just like it is to us today, is don't get into fear. Fear none of these things, which you shall suffer. Behold, he says, the devil shall cast now some of you into prison. Now, see, he's, he's saying to the church, the devil's going to cast some of you into prison. Notice he didn't say the government's going to cast you into prison. He said the devil is. Well, what did Paul tell him? He said our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers of darkness. And you're looking at people. See, your thinking's not right. You're going to have to change how you think. It's not people. It's these rulers of darkness, these, these powers and principalities that are behind them. He said, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and that you may be tried. It means you're going to be tested. You're going to be put under pressure. You shall have tribulation ten days. Now, what is, why does he say ten days? He says ten days because he says it's just going to be a short time. Now, there may be a prophetic thing in there about the ten days, but his, his word to the church is smart. It's just a 10-day period. It's a short period of time. It's not forever. So don't get into fear. You're going to get, in other words, some of you are going to go get cast into prison. Why? Because God knows not everybody's going to listen. Not everybody's going to listen to him. Some people are going to do things their own way, and it's going to cost them. And some people, just because they're in the world, it's going to cost them. They're going to go to prison. But he said, it's only for 10 days. All right? You'll be tried, you have tribulation 10 days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. His word to the church of Smyrna, be faithful. There was a great temptation, and that's what was happening in Smyrna. It was for Christians to come and worship these other gods. That they would, they would compromise the word of God and give in. Well, you know, we could go ahead and, Martha, we could go ahead and join this guild, and I could worship the, the devil occasionally, but I don't really need it. I'm just doing it to get food in the house so that we got something to eat. God will understand. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what he said. He said, I understand you're under a lot of tribulation, a lot of pressure here, but be faithful. Be faithful. Don't give up. Be faithful to the end, and I will put, look what he says here, be faithful to the end, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcomes... That means you're going to have to overcome. They're going to have to overcome. Shall not be heard of the second death. It's the second death. You go to hell. Now the implication is them that don't overcome, them that, them that yield, they're going to experience the second death. All right? Be faithful. All right? And I see as a Christian, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about when you fall, what do you do? You repent. You ask for forgiveness. You're quick to ask for forgiveness. 
You're not slow. See, what was happening is a lot of these people that were calling themselves Christians, they weren't repenting. And so they weren't overcoming. And so guess what? They're going to experience the second death. See, that's why I've said, I've said for, for, for years, Christians don't die like other people. We really don't. When, when, you, when, you, when it comes time for you to leave your body, you just step out. When Stephen, in the book of Acts, was preaching, and, and they started to hurl bricks and everything at him, they were stoning him. It said he looked up, he said, he looked up and he saw, he saw Jesus standing in heaven. Hold it. The Word of God says Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, but Stephen, under this, this pressure, this attack, he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing. I believe Jesus said, come here. Those, those stones and rocks and everything they threw at him, he never felt them. He never felt them. His flesh took the, the, the effect of it. But he, didn't sit, he wasn't there saying, oh, that hurts. No, no. He's pulled out of his body. See, when, when you as a believer, when that time comes, you don't, you don't die like everybody else. Let's go on here to this next one. Just do one more here. See, this is what I'm saying. I can't get through this. I can't get through it. He says here, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write these things, saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works. Again, he's saying, I've been there. And where you dwell, he's saying, I, I know where you live. I know why you live there, where you live. See, he's, he's telling these people, I know where you live and I know where you dwell there because you, you can't get someplace else. You don't have the finances or the means to get somewhere else. You're living right here. So he says, I know where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. Now, it says Satan's seat, but when you look at that, that word seat, it actually means throne. So Jesus is saying Satan's throne was right there in Pergamos. And what is a throne? A throne, by definition, means it's a ruler of the house. Satan had been there so long in Pergamos, he had a throne in that city. They worshipped him. They did what he said. And then here, for all these hundreds and hundreds of years, Satan had a foothold on this city, but what, guess what happens? The light of the gospel comes in and starts to do what? Dethroning him. So Jesus' word to this church, he says, he says, I know the works and where you dwell, this, where, this, where Satan's seat is, and you hold fast my name, and you have not denied my faith. Wow, I could preach probably a whole sermon on that, that phrase right there. You hold fast my name. He's saying to the church in Pergamos, they held on to his name. They were using the name of Jesus. They wouldn't go to places because 
They knew it was a demonic stronghold. They stayed away from places. They used the name of Jesus constantly as an as a offensive and defensive weapon against these dark forces that were trying to attack them. And that's what he's saying. He says, you, you, you hold fast to my name and you have not denied my faith. Jesus now reveals to the church that the faith that we have is not our faith, but it's his faith. And he said to the church in Smyrna, you're holding fast to my faith. You're trusting me. You're not trusting the world. You're not believing everything that comes your way, but you're trusting me. You're looking to me. It's very important. He says, you hold fast to my name, and you have not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan lives. Now I want to say this one thing about, about Antipas. Antipas was very interesting. And he was, he, was a, he was God's martyr. Now the definition of a martyr means to stand true to his faith, regardless of the prices. A martyr's definition is to stand true to his faith, regardless of the price. See, when you hear about people that die for the Lord, they're standing true to the faith. They're not, regardless of the price. You know, I've said this before, back, back in, the, in, the, in the Colosseum where they would bring Christians in and they would sacrifice them to the lions. And the Christians, it got to the point where Christians were looking forward to going into the Colosseum because they knew they were dying for God. And that went fine for a while. And then the Romans, the Roman citizens said, we love the strength of these people, the courage of these people. We want what they got. And they started jumping into the, into the Colosseum with the Christians and dying with them. And the emperor of Rome said, we can't have this. Stop the executions. And that's when it stopped. So these people, see, they, weren't, they were dying for their faith. They were willingly dying. And he said they were martyrs. Antipas, all right, real quick. Antipas means anti. Pus means anti against the ways of the world. He was anti-world. He didn't follow the ways of the world. They, they considered him anti-sociable because he didn't, he, he didn't participate in their ways of doing things. And what they did was they took Antipas and martyred him. And how they did it was they, they got this big bowl, which was a god that they worshipped. And this bowl was made out of <clears throat> metal, probably copper or, or iron or a mix, and it had a door on the side. And so what they, they did was they tied Antipas up with rope, bound him in this rope completely so he couldn't move. They then stuffed him inside this bowl. They closed the door, and then they lit a big fire underneath this bowl and heated the bowl up to where he literally cooked inside this bowl. 
Now, they had actually designed this so that there was pipes that went out from the, from the inside the bull, out of the bull's mouth and horns, all right, so that when the people inside were dying and screaming, it sounded like the bull literally came to life and was, was, was making its sound. And it just excited the crowd even more. But that's what happened to Antipas. That's how he was martyred. And Jesus speaks of him. He says, Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan lives. Now, also in this city of Pergamos was this structure which was basically built to, to Zeus, to worship Zeus. It was a structure, and basically they called it the throne of Satan. It is a structure that rulers of, of, of the world have desired. As a matter of fact, Adolf Hitler sent troops into this city back before World War II, in the beginning of World War II, and had them take this structure down and bring it to Germany. When you see Hitler, old movies of Hitler, Hitler standing and giving speeches and there's this white big structure behind him. That's it. It's the throne of Satan. I won't say who, but two presidents ago, when he, when he had an election and, and had a rally in, in Denver, Colorado, they had a fake one of these erected behind him, a throne of Satan. And he gave a speech in front of this throne. and People didn't even recognize it. They didn't even know. You'd have to go back on that. You'd have to go back and look if you could even find it. But the media today covers a lot of these things up. So he says, to, in verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you. And notice, he's not against everybody. He says, I have a few things against you. Meaning, there's a small portion of this church that something started happening. He says, I have a few things against you because you have. You have here them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, that word hold means Jesus had dealt with them before about this doctrine and they refused to do anything about it. He said, they hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now, what was the sin of Balak and Balaam? Well, if you go back into Numbers, and, uh, and I think I got it written down here. Numbers. Twenty-five verses one through three. You can read it later. We won't go there right now, just because of time purposes. They ask Balak to cast a curse on the Jewish people. And his reply is, I cannot curse what God's blessed. I can't. He said, But I got an idea. I got an idea. What we can do is we can get. God to bring the curse on them, to judge them. And Balaam said, well, how will we do that? He said, it's real simple. Now you have to understand, 
this place that where this takes place in numbers is, is a city called Shittim. And it was a mountaintop. And up on top of the mountain was a was a uh, an altar to the the god of Baal, Baal of Peor, and he was one of the most worst worth worst gods. They did some just demonic stuff up there. I won't even get into it. It was so bad. So Balak tells Balaam, "Here's what we'll do. We'll get the Moabite women to go out in front of Israelites." And it said, dangle themselves. He said, we'll get the Moabite women to go out and parade naked in front of all the Jews. Now these men have been a long time away from home. They haven't seen their wives for months, maybe years. We'll tempt them and get them to come out. And the women, when the men come to meet the women, the women, the women will take the men up to the altar of Baal of Peor, and they'll have sex up there, and they'll cause God to judge them. And that's what they did. Naked, the men compromised and said, you know, hey, we've, our wives will never know. They'll never find out. We've been months away from our wives. Let's go. Who will ever know? God will understand. I mean, we're by ourselves for all these months, maybe years, God will understand. So they go with the women, and God brings judgment to them. And that's how we defeat them. And that's what happened. So Jesus says, he says, they have held fast to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou... So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, notice he says here, he doesn't hate the Nicolaitans, he hates their doctrine. God does not hate people. He hates doctrines, he hates acts, he hates sin. That's what he hates. Now, he says, repent or else I will come unto you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, he says to the Nicolaitans, he talks about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The word Nicolaitans breaks down this way. It, the meaning of Nicolaitans is one who conquers people. The very meaning of their name was they conquer the people. They get rule over the people so they're, what? they're not following God. He gets them to lower their standards. He gets them to eat what they shouldn't be eating. He gets them to bow down to other gods and also join themselves with these other gods. He kindled his, his anger, his judgment against Israel. All right, there's four things that the Nicolaitans did. And basically their doctrine was one of inclusiveness and compromise. We would also call it progressiveness. All right? Inclusiveness. You want to listen to that word because you're hearing that in Christian churches. We include everybody. 
I'm sorry, we'll love people, but we won't love their sin. You know, somebody asked me, he said, if, if you had a homosexual couple come into your church, would you let them sit there? I said, I'd let them sit there. I'm not going to let them manifest. If they're here to hear the gospel, hear the word of God and learn from it, I will. But I said, the moment they manifest, we're either casting that devil out of them or they're leaving. Not, we're not going to tolerate that. All right? Well, that's not walking. Yes, it's walking in love because love corrects. Love corrects people. Love warns people. I mean, if, if your house is on fire or your neighbor's house is on fire in the middle of the night, you're going to get up and go over there? You're going to say, well, you know, I, I shouldn't go over there. I should just leave, leave myself over here because I don't want to get in their business. No, you're running across the street. You're banging on the Get up. Get out of here. Since what we're doing in, in the realm of the Spirit because people are dying and going to hell. They don't even know it. There's Christians that, that think themselves Christians, but because they're not living right, they, they bow to something, they're going to go through a lot of stuff. So the four things the, the Nicolaitans did, four signs of Nicolaitans, there's no, there's no emphasis on holy living in separation. That's number one. Number two, there's no emphasis on the teaching of the Bible doctrines. Number three, there's no emphasis on absolute truth. They want you to keep an open mind. No, there's absolute truths. Number four, there no exclusions all right, on, on the belief that Christ is the only way. And you'll hear churches that say, well, Jesus is a way, but he's not the only way. You know, we, we believe with our brothers that are, are Buddhist and Muslims that we all serve this. No, we don't. No, we don't serve the same God. I can't stand with other men or women and say, well, let's all lift our hands and worship God, knowing that there's Muslims and Buddhists. I can't do that. We're not, I am not going to let them think that we're worshiping the same God. I have to leave. I've got to go. Because I am not going to give that testimony that we are worshiping the same. We don't. You're worshiping, you're worshiping ultimately Satan. That's who you're worshiping. Jesus is the only way. There's no other way. There is no other way. So that's what the, that's what the Nicolaitans were doing. They were compromising the word of God saying, well, you know, we've got to include all these people. I mean, there's churches out there, I've seen more of them all the time that they say, come to our church, we, we don't teach about sin. We don't, we don't use the S word. I remember a few years ago, Doc Barkley got a call by a big church up in Chicago. Big, huge church. If I said it, you'd you probably know it. And the pastor of the church said, Doc, um, this is Pastor so-and-so at this big church. He said, I was wondering if you could do me a favor and come up and help me out. He said, well, what's going on? He said, uh, I've got prostitution running rampant in my church. I've got drug dealings going on in my church. And he said, Doc Barkley said to him, he said, do you know who you're talking to? He said, yeah, this is Mark, Mark Barkley, isn't it? He said, yeah, Mark Barkley, Holy Ghost filled, tongue talking. 
devil cast an outer. He said, yeah, that's who I want to talk to. He said, we could come up and help you. He said, I'm not going to come up and help you. You made your mess. You, you walk in it. He said, because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come up there, and when I preach, your whole congregation's gone. Everybody's leaving. And everybody's going to blame me. They're going to say, Bar Mark Barkley came and emptied out my church. Now I don't have anybody here. We've got to shut the doors. He said, no, I'm not coming up there. You made that vomit. You clean it up. See, now that takes boldness. But that's love. That's love. Because if he'd come up there, even if he emptied out half the church, that pastor would think what he did wasn't that bad. You don't need to learn a lesson. You preached stuff that was doctrine that was against the Word of God. It was the, it was the doctrine that Jesus hates. And we've, we've got these churches all around here. They're all around these, this city and Evansville and surrounding there. They're all around there. Most of your big churches are that way. I know one big church, I won't say which one it was, but I know somebody was going there and they said that they were talking about the praise and worship team and they said that uh, there's people on the praise and worship team, they're living, they're living together. They're not even married. I'm like, on the altar of God? Yeah. Now, you'd say, well, that's their fault. That's between, you know, God's going to hold it. As the pastor, as the shepherd of the church, it's his or her responsibility to know what's going on at this altar. Yeah. And if something like that's going on, you can't tell me the Holy Ghost wouldn't say, Pastor, you've got sin on your altar here. It needs to be dealt with. Because he's going to deal with it. See, that's the reason why this, this belief that Jesus said, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Because they, they tell people that everything is okay when it's not. And again, Jesus was saying, there's a few. He said, in this church, all right, at Pergamos, there's a small group of people, but it's growing. And if you don't do something about it, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you all out. You've got to be aware of that. I'm, I remember this one minister, he was preaching at a church, and, and uh, he had an altar call. And the, the Spirit of God spoke to him. He said, ma'am, you in the very back row back there, and he, he described her to a T. She stood up. And he said, I want you to say this out loud. Jesus is Lord. She wouldn't do it. He said, Jesus is Lord. She wouldn't do it. And she started cussing him. I mean, full-fledged cussing this man. He said, you can come down here and repent and we'll get you right with God or you'd leave right now. And she left. The pastor gets up and said, what did you do? He said, what do you mean what I do? That woman had devils in her. She's a witch. And he said, she, she's my head intercessor. What am I going to do now? He said, you're going to get another head intercessor. <laughs> I mean, see, that, and that was a real situation. The pastor didn't even know his head intercessor was a witch. This is real stuff, folks. We've got to get skillful in these things. That's why I'm, I'm, you know, every pastor desires to have a huge church. 
I'd rather have five, six people that know the Word of God, that are doing the will of God, and doing the Word of God, and living it. We'll change the city. We'll change this city. You gotta believe that. We don't need a house for it would be nice, yes, but we need people that'll stand on this word and say, I'm not gonna compromise. I'm not gonna do things that way just to get more people or maybe a praise and worship band where they come in here on Sundays, but Friday and Saturday night they're down at the honky tonk playing playing rock and roll and country music and they're singing about everything the devil stole from them. And you don't tell me they're going to come in here on Sunday and worship God. That's stupid. I'll do videos. And if they take YouTube from us, or I can't do that, I'll get CDs and somehow we'll get placards and we can stand up here, somebody will hold a placard saying, this line here, here's this line here. I'm not going to have somebody up here doing praise and worship just so we can have live worship. They've even said the largest, these people that sell these smoke machines, the leaders of these businesses have said their largest people they sell to are churches. I was in a church in Owensboro, Kentucky when a man of God came in there and what were they doing? They had smoke machines going. Why? To imitate the Holy Spirit. Because why? They don't know how to get him here. So we got to imitate. And the man of God looked over at the pastor and said, shut that stuff off or I'm not going up there. And the smoke machines were shut off. But I talked to a couple of people later on, a few months later, and they said, oh, they're back on. And they get five, seven hundred people every Sunday. People standing there think they're worshiping God. Everything's okay. I went to church. I did my deed. See, you didn't get something put in you to change your life. You didn't get something put in you that'll guard you from losing your life. And people are going to churches thinking their life's okay and they're dying and wondering why they're not waking up in heaven. They're wondering why, why I'm experiencing a terrible death. Did you not say, you're not right. You believed what some pastor told you that wasn't, didn't even know the Word of God. I'd say, I won't do that. That's why I want to take time on, on teaching about these churches because there's more to come. This is, you know, we're just, we're, we're just here in the middle of chapter two. We still got the rest of chapter two, chapter three to go, you know, on up to chapter four. Amen. Did you get something today? Let's stand up. Praise God. So I told you, I didn't, I didn't want to go too long today. But praise God. We've got to get serious.